And we are back together for week two of our series, Summer at the Compass. I am being blessed with a summer study break, and we are being blessed with four outstanding guest preachers. And today's guest is a friend by the name of Dr. Paul Borden. Paul is a church consultant, and he has been a friend of the Compass Church for many, many years, long before I ever came around. He has blessed the leadership of our church with tremendous guidance and training, helping us to bring our ministry to the next level. I can tell you I am personally so indebted to Paul's guidance. I love this guy. He is a friend, and you are about to be greatly blessed with his teaching from God's Word. Folks, would you join me in welcoming Dr. Paul Borden? Thank you. Thank you. Whenever I'm going to prepare a sermon, I go to the Word of God because the only authority any preacher has to say anything to anyone else is based on what God actually says, and that's His authority. But when I also go to the Word of God every time, I assume that even though I've been in that passage before, I'm going to see something new, something different, a different perspective, something distinct. And that always happens because, after all, the Bible is God's eternal word. It's his mind. It's his thoughts to us. But the passage I want to look at this weekend, when I went to study that passage, I was shocked. I was surprised because what I saw in that passage was not something I had ever seen before. When we go through it, you may have seen it, but I hadn't. Now, I've been in church all my life. This year, if you had come to me on my birthday and said, Paul, how long have you been in church? I would have told you for 73 years and nine months because I went with my mother before I was even born. I have heard sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. I went to Bible college where we had courses where we studied the Word of God with intensity and we looked at different portions and sections of God's Word. I went to a seminary that had a four-year program because they wanted to spend time not only talking about the Bible but actually studying the Bible. I've been preaching for almost 60 years. Uh, I have probably taught or preached intensely on about three-quarters of the Word of God, but I had never seen what I saw in this passage. And I want to share with you what that surprise is and what it's meant to me and the message that God has given me to that. Now, the first thing that is not a surprise is the first verse of the passage we want to look at, which is Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. In verse 2, it says this, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. That's not a surprise. I would expect the Apostle Paul to say, be devoted to prayer. I do a lot of travel by air, and I've come to realize that traveling with young children today on an airplane is very different from when I traveled with our children when they were young. Parents show up at the gate with all kinds of paraphernalia. There's strollers, there's seats, there's backpacks, there's bottles, there's digital stuff, and they're juggling all this stuff as they get on the plane. Why? Because they're devoted to their child. They want to make sure their child is safe. They want to make sure their child is cared for. They have that kind of devotion. As someone who enjoys sports, I am sometimes amazed at how fanatical some fans are. 
the way they argue, the way they dress, the way they talk. I mean, you even have fans that wear cheese on their heads or worse yet, others who wear cheese graters on their head. I mean, you just, you know, that's the way fans are. Now, the reason they do that is because they're devoted to their team. That's what Paul says when he says, be devoted to prayer. This is not something you do on the backstroke. It's not three minutes before you slip into bed at night, but prayer is an integral part of your life and you are to be devoted. Now, he says the motivation for that is thankfulness. Earlier in this book of Colossians, he has said to these people, he said, when you were born, you had a problem with God. You were born and you were a sinner, not only because you did bad things, but because you have a sin in your character. It's part of your nature. It's who you are, and you're at enmity with God. But Jesus Christ did something about that sin, and he brought peace between the human race and God through what Jesus did on the cross. And Paul says it's that thankfulness for that that calls us to be devoted to him in prayer. I have never had anyone actually literally save my life. I live in a country where people have given their life so that we can enjoy the life we have here in the United States. But I've never had anyone drown trying to save me from drowning or someone who stepped in front of a car to make sure I wasn't put in front of a car. But I guarantee you, if that had happened, every time I thought of that person, it would be with great gratitude, with great thankfulness because of what that person did for me. And Paul says, since Jesus Christ has done this for us, we needed to be devoted in prayer. He also says we need to be watchful. Recently, my wife and I bought a house up in the foothills of the Sierras in California. Almost every day across our property, we see deer. I don't think there are any animals that are more skittish than deer. They're constantly sniffing the air. Their ears are alert. Any sound and the least little disturbance, and they're off because they're watchful. And Paul says that's the way we're to look at life, and that's also why we need to be involved in prayer. So to be devoted to be to be devoted in prayer because of thankfulness and watchfulness, that wasn't a surprise. But here's what the surprise was. Not that we should be praying, but the content of those prayers. In fact, look with me at verse 3 where the Apostle Paul says, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Paul says, here's what I want you to pray for me that as we share the gospel, we will have an open door. Now, to me, that was a little strange because every time you see the Apostle Paul, it seems as though he has open doors. In Acts 13, he and Barnabas are on that first missionary journey. They're in a strange city. They go into the synagogue on the Sabbath. The synagogue leaders say, would you speak? And Paul stands up and he shares with them about Jesus Christ. In Acts 16, he's in another strange city. It's the Sabbath. He goes down by the river to pray and there's some women there and he shares the gospel with them. Later, he's in jail for preaching the gospel in that same city. At midnight, there's an earthquake, and all the convicts are freed, and the jailer are fearing that they're going to run. Paul says, no, they're not. And the jailer says, how do I find Jesus? And Paul shares the gospel with him even before his wounds are taken care of. In Acts 17, he's in the marketplace in Athens, and the philosophers are discussing and debating as they did all the time, and he joins and he shares the gospel. So you say, well, Paul, what do you mean by an open door? I think what Paul meant by an open door is this, that when I share the gospel, will you pray that communication actually occurs? 
that the people I'm talking to, it makes sense. They listen, they hear, that I am clear to them that, that we have this opportunity that when I speak, there is a result and something happens. Recently in this past year, I've met a pastor. The first time I met him, we went out for breakfast. And then three months later, I preached at his church, and afterwards we went out for lunch, and both times as we sat down, as the wait person came over to take our order, he said to the wait person, by the way, my name is so-and-so, and I'm the pastor at this church. In a moment, we're going to pray and give thanks for the food. Is there anything I can pray for you for? And I was amazed. In the busy restaurant, the wait person would say, yeah, you could pray for this or you could pray for that. As I talked to other pastors, they say he does this all the time. And so I asked him about it. He said, yes. He said, it's amazing how every time I say to someone, can I pray for you, generally they give me a prayer request. But he said, what's also interesting, on some occasions before I leave the restaurant, they come to me and say, can we meet at a later time that I want to talk to you more about what I asked you to pray about? And God begins to open the door. I think that's what Paul was saying he wanted to happen. About two months ago, I went to my 55th high school reunion. I've only been to two my 40th, and my 55th. The only difference between the two, the 55th had less people. And you had to make sure you didn't trip over the walkers. Other, other than that, you know, it was a good reunion. And I had been praying, God, give me an open door. Give me a chance to somehow share the gospel. That night at the dinner, we're sitting around the table. There's nine other people, classmates that I had gone all the way from kindergarten through high school with. Two of the guys I had played basketball with across from me got into a conversation. And they started talking about another classmate who wasn't there. They said, you know, so-and-so is a Jehovah's Witness. I want to tell you, he's the most obnoxious person I've ever met. Every time I'm with him, he's talking to me about what he believes. And finally, he said, I got so frustrated, I said to him, leave me alone. I pray every morning and I pray every night. I don't need to hear from you. Now, I couldn't shout across the table and say, well, let me tell you what I believe. But I did something I haven't done in years. On Monday morning, I wrote a letter, and in that letter that I addressed to the classmate who said he prayed, I said, I'm impressed that you pray every morning and every evening. I said, as you know, I'm a pastor. In fact, the whole class knows I'm a pastor, and I have to say grace every time we go back to the union because only pastors can pray. And I said, you know I'm involved in all this stuff, but I don't see many people who have the dedication you do. Now, let me tell you what I believe about prayer and about God and Jesus. And I shared the gospel with him. And then I said, I know you don't like to be bugged about this, so I'm not going to send you any more letters. But here's my cell number and here's my email. Now, I haven't heard yet, but I'm praying that God will open the door for me to talk to that classmate about his relationship with Jesus Christ. So Paul's first request was, Will you pray that God will give us an open door? The second request is, in some degree, even a little bit more strange. If you look at the next verse, where we read in verse uh, 4, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now, this is strange. If anybody should have been clear about the gospel, it was the Apostle Paul. I mean, he wrote the whole book of Romans to explain what the gospel was. To the Galatians, he says, you're now believing another gospel. Let me tell you what you need to believe. There have been times when I have been on these gatherings of pastors where we're interviewing a potential pastor who would like to get ordained. We're asking that person about their theology or what they believe about the Bible. And one of my favorite questions is to say to that person, 
Suppose someone comes up to you. They've been in church for a lot of their lives. They know some stuff about the Bible, but they say to you, I don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ that you talk about. I'm not sure what I really means to be a Christian. Would you help me? And you have 60 seconds to answer. So at that point, the person usually says to me, Paul, well, tell me some more about this person. I said, well, you have 50 seconds now. (laughs) Because what I want to find out is, can this person in clarity explain the essence of the gospel? The essence of the gospel in some ways is relatively simple. The first issue is that you and I have a need. That need is that we are born in sin. We are born as sinners, and we are at an enmity with God. We're alienated from God. And if we're going to ever come to God, we can't because of sin. The second part of the essence of the gospel is that Jesus met that need. He became sin for us. He he took our sin. He paid the price for that sin. And then the third piece of the gospel is that we have a responsibility. Are we going to believe? Are we going to trust in Jesus Christ? Now, I think Paul understood that. That's not what he's asking for when he says, be clear. I think what Paul is saying, I live in a world much like the United States today where there's people with all different kinds of beliefs, all different kinds of understandings, all different kinds of philosophies. And I want to make sure when I'm with the right kind of people, I know how to communicate this message well. I mean, when Paul in Acts 13 is asked by the people in the synagogue to speak, he starts out by talking about the Old Testament. He talks about how God made Israel a nation, talks about Samuel and Saul and David and how they were kings and then how Israel had failed God and God said he would send the Messiah and Jesus came and he died but was raised from the dead, which according to David proves he's the Messiah. So he referred back to the Old Testament in order to preach the gospel to people who were Jewish or had converted to Judaism. But when he was in the marketplace in Acts 17, these people didn't even know about the Old Testament. They had never even heard of Yahweh. They didn't know who Jesus was. They were totally ignorant of all of that. And so Paul says, I see you have an idol to an unknown God. You're spiritual people. Let me tell you about that God. This God created the world. In fact, this God created the human race. And this God is displeased with the human race, is going to bring judgment on the human race. But because of that, this God sent a person who died, and he raised him from the dead that we can believe in Jesus. And so when he was with the Jews, he started with the Old Testament. When he was with these philosophers, he started with creation because they were different audiences. Some of you might say, well, what's this have to do with us? Well, we live in a world where if we're going to share the gospel, there are different audiences. You see, I'm old enough to remember when we lived in what is called a Christendom world. In a Christendom world, the beliefs and the teachings of the Bible are part of the culture. So in the 1950s, when I was in elementary school, every day I'd walk into class and the teacher would hand a Bible to a different student and say, read a psalm. Lead us in the Lord's Prayer, and lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, most of the kids I went to school with didn't go to church. Most of the kids I went to school with probably aren't Christians the way many of us would define a Christian, but they had to read the Bible. They had to know the Lord's Prayer. Now, we as Christian kids, we had an advantage. We read Psalm 119 because that took more time. But we would, you know, do the Bible. Or that's why for years, communities every Christmas would put up the nativity scene. Nobody complained about it because we lived in a Christendom world. 
That's why you used to be able to walk into our courtrooms and there would be the list of the Ten Commandments. Now, when you share the gospel with somebody who has come up in a Christendom world, they have a sense of who God is. They have a sense of who Jesus is. There's even a sense of guilt that I've got to do something about all this stuff that is in my life. But we no longer live in a Christendom world. We live in a secular world. And in a secular world, not only do people not know about Jesus or God or the Bible, not only are they against Jesus or God of the Bible, they just are ignorant of Jesus and God and the Bible. In fact, they say now that probably one in every four Americans is a secular person in the sense that they have no idea about God, they have no idea about the Bible, and when they're interviewed about that, they just check none. I call them pragmatic atheists. They just don't know. And how you share the gospel with that person is different than how you share the gospel with a person who comes from a Christendom background. And Paul was saying, will you pray for me that I use the right language when I'm talking to a different audience in order to be clear? But then he turns and talks about us and what we should be praying for. Look at verse 5 where the Apostle Paul says this. If we can get that next slide, there we go. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Paul says, because we live in a secular world, because that's the world he lived in, we need to think about how we behave so that when people watch us and see our behavior, they understand there's something different about us. We have a different set of values. We believe differently, and we act wisely toward these outsiders so we can share the gospel. There was a time in our life when our family was able to buy a brand new house. We, we, along with two other families, were the first three families in the new development that was being opened. On the corner was a fireman who was divorced and lived what many people would call the caricature of a single lifestyle. There, we lived next to him, and we were Christians. And next door to us was this old retired couple. He had come over from the old country, had worked hard all of his life, and they were retired. And they went to church sometimes, but sometimes they didn't. They were just glad to enjoy their retirement. And we got to know each other because we were the first three families on this block. In fact, the fireman who lived on the corner, even though he was single, he was a good guy. In fact, we lived in Denver, and when it would snow, he would take a snowblower and clean off his sidewalk and his driveway. And then he'd take a snowblower down my sidewalk and blow snow off. And then he would do these, this old couple so they didn't have to get out and do it, do their driveway. And then he'd go back up the other side of our sidewalk. So every time it snowed, our sidewalk was clear. It meant all I had to do was shovel the driveway. About five years into this, we had a very bad windstorm. And the privacy fence that was on the line between his yard and my yard blew down. He had built it, and I had given him money for our portion of it. And so he came over to me and said, now, Paul, when the insurance company comes to you, ask about the blown fence. You tell them the fence was on your property, and they'll give you full benefit. I will tell my insurance company that it was on my property, and they'll give me full benefit. You give me all that money, and I'll put the fence up. Well, when it came time for me to interact with my insurance company, I knew I couldn't lie. I said, no, the, the fence was literally on the property line. So they gave me half benefit. I took that money, and I went over to their neighbor, and I said, this is what the insurance company gave me. He said, well, it should be double that. I said, well, I couldn't lie to them. I told them it was on the property line. I could tell he wasn't happy about it. But I found out how unhappy he was the next time it snowed. His driveway and 
uh, sidewalk were all cleaned off. And then I saw in the snow where he had taken the snowblower out in the street and bypassed my sidewalk, did the neighbors, and then he'd taken the snowblower back out in the street. And so I had my sidewalk still had snow on it. Now, that was frustrating. But here's what was really frustrating. I remember talking to my wife about it. I said, hey, we're trying to live godly lives. We can't lie. But we also want to reach out to our neighbor. We want him to know Jesus. And right now, as far as he's concerned, we're the enemy. What do we do about this? God gave me some wisdom. So I took a note and I wrote to the neighbor and I said, I I understand that you're angry about how I talk to the insurance company. I said, that's part of my belief of how I should behave. But because I believe in Jesus, you are important to us as a family. We value you. We like you, and we don't want to have strife between us. And I shared with him the gospel, and I said, just to prove that I mean this, here's a check for the other half that the insurance company was going to give us. We couldn't afford it, but I thought it was important. I put that check in his note, in a note, and stuck it in his mailbox. The next time it snowed, it was interesting. His driveway and sidewalk was cleared. My sidewalk was cleared. And the neighbor's sidewalk was cleared. Now, that was nice. But here's what was really nice. About two months later, spring, we're sitting on the back porch with the retired couple. It's just one of my children and I. And the woman said to me, she said, you know, your neighbor up there, he didn't know what to make of you. He said, you blew his mind. He said, people don't act this way. This is not normal. And I said, yeah, God. We were able to establish the relationship. And Paul says we need to be praying about how do we act wisely so that people around us come to know Jesus. He also says in that verse, make the most of every opportunity. Recently, I was with a pastor, young pastor, and a woman in his church, an elderly lady, came to him and said, my husband is in the hospital dying. In fact, he would die about seven days later. Would you go to the hospital and pray for him? And so when he went into the hospital, not only did he pray for him, but he shared the gospel with this man that was dying. The man accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. And he said to the pastor, would you baptize me? And the pastor said, so I went back a couple days later and I baptized him. Now, I knew in his denomination that the way they baptize is by immersion. You know, this is where you drown people. You put them all underwater. I said, how'd you baptize? He said, oh, I poured. I said, where'd you learn to do that? He said, on YouTube. He said, I, a couple of days later, I said, call all your family in. The kids were there, the grandkids, which were teenagers, they were all standing in the room. So I put a towel under his head, a towel across his chest, and I took some water. And after explaining the gospel to the family and what this meant, I baptized him. When I got done, two of the teenagers said, we just trusted in Jesus Christ, would you baptize us? He said, next Sunday, another teenager's come to church and we're going to baptize him. He had taken that opportunity and made the most of it to share the gospel. In fact, in the next verse, the Apostle Paul says this in verse 6, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The way we talk is attractive to people, so they want to ask us about Jesus and we can share the gospel. You say, well, Paul, what's the big surprise? Here's the big surprise. He starts out by saying, be devoted to prayer. 
That's no surprise. But then when you look at all the things he says we're to pray for, none of them are about us and our needs. All the requests are how do we help lost people meet Jesus. Over the years, I have been to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prayer meetings. I have led prayer meetings. And maybe in the prayer meeting, someone will stand up and say, my spouse is not a believer. Will you pray for them? Someone else might say, our two adult children have kind of gone off the rails. We don't think they're Christians. Would you pray for them? Or would you pray for our boss? But most of the prayers in our prayer meetings, at least the ones I've been in, have not been for lost people. They've been for us, for our needs, for our problems, our issues. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But Paul says if you're going to be devoted to prayer, what you need to be praying for is not for yourself, but for the people who don't know Jesus. The turn of the previous century, 1920 or so, a New York homicide detective wrote a textbook on how to solve murders. That textbook was used for many years to train policemen to be detectives. In that book, he said, when someone is murdered, other people may grieve, other people may sense the loss that goes with the death of that person. But he says, that person has lost all power in the world because they're dead. And there's nobody to speak or represent that person. And in this book, he said, that's the job of the detective. The reason you solve the crime is to speak for the dead. In most of the prayer meetings I've been in, we pray for the living. We pray for those of us who have a new relationship with Jesus Christ. We are the sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, and we pray for us. But where in our prayers do we pray for the dead? I believe we need to have times of prayer when we sit down, and the whole focus of prayer is not on our needs, but it's on those who don't know Jesus, and we literally are praying for those who are spiritually dead that they might come to know Jesus Christ. I think one reason why the church of Jesus Christ is in such bad shape in our nation is that most of our prayers are for the living rather than us praying for the dead that God will open doors, that God will make us clear, that God will help us to live wisely, that God will help us to make the most of every opportunity. Because when we pray for the lost, that's how the Great Commission gets filled. This passage has changed the way I think about prayer. It's changing the way I pray because I found that most of my prayers were for the living when I need to be spending a large amount of my time in prayer for those who don't know Jesus. Would you bow with me now in prayer? Our gracious God, use this passage in our lives to not only increase our devotion to you in prayer, but would you use this passage, our God, to teach us to spend more time in prayer for those who are yet to know you whether it's friends, whether it's relatives, whether it's co-workers, whether it's other students we go to school with, Father, would you help us to be women and men who don't just pray for the living, for all of our friends who know you. But wait, may we be people who pray lost prayers for those who are spiritually dead, that they will know you and that you will use us as instruments to reach them with the good news of Jesus Christ. May that happen not only in this campus, but across this whole church. 
that it will be known as a church that prays not only for the living, but prays for the dead. For I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.